is Josh Alvarez, and you are listening to episode twenty-five of Cinepunks. Yeah, yeah. I was I was waiting for you to correct me if that was incorrect. Oh, I don't actually know. <laughs> I think it's twenty-five. We said twenty-five on the episode. All right. Well, if it isn't twenty-five, it's twenty-five now. So, how about that? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, what's what is at stake if it's not twenty-five? Like, what are we risking? Uh, an a. Uh, we're risking uh, people's uh, faith in us being able to count, which, uh, if you can't trust me to count to 25, then verily you can't trust my opinions on movies. <laughs> I'm not sure that people should trust our ability to, to count. Well, it's not that our ability to count. It's our ability to keep records well. Okay. Well, hey, you know, we're not record keepers. <laughs> we're 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 movie watchers. This is our this is our second attempt at remote casting. Josh is in Philadelphia, the beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Liam is in lovely Easton, hometown of my beautiful wife, Melani Georges. Don't lie, it's not lovely. Your wife is lovely. <laughs> well my wife is lovely. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you, man. It's what it is. It's beautiful. <laughs> How's the weather over there? I rode my bike today for the first time in like 20 years, and it was wonderful. I, I let the wind stream through my non-existent hair. What is it What is it in Philly right now? It's 50 or so? Something like that. I don't know. It's nice enough with the sun out and no snow. It's a general rule that the temperature at my house is always 5 to 10 degrees colder than it is where you are. Wow. Okay. Well, hey, man, we're on the up and up. That's what that means. Yeah, true, true, true. Uh, no, it's good. It's been, yesterday was really nice. Today is a little bit nicer, but there's still snow everywhere. I can't deal with the snow, man. I'm so bummed on this snow. I'm ready for this winter season to be over, and I'm ready for us to be complaining about how hot it is. Yeah, that'd be nice. I like <laughs> compl- I that. like complaining about how hot it is. That's a that's a better complaint cycle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's go. So, let's get started. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So welcome man, to we our uh, this is our special salad days episode. We uh, we sat down with Scott Crawford and uh, uh, and Mr. Jim Sa. Jim Sa. Jim Sa. So uh, I guess, and I was trying to suss out from the titles, but it seems like they made this movie Salad Days together, right? Like Scott. Uh, was I guess the director? Jim shot a lot of it. Was a producer, editor. So it was definitely like a. They did this together. This was not um, just Scott or just Jim. No, yeah, Jim was uh, cited as the director of photography for the movie, and um, apparently he is an old school photographer from the DC area, and he has been shooting punk shows for a very long time, which is why Scott wanted him. I mean, in addition to them being friends, from what I could gather, Scott wanted him to be. Be um, the DP for the movie because a lot of the pictures from the time were shot by him. So he wanted to have that congruence between the way the movie looked and the way that his memory of pictures from zines and all that stuff, like he wanted them to meet. From what I could understand, I mean, like I could just be wrong. They could just be bros and we're like, yo, bro, want to make a movie? Yeah, bro. And then that's how that went down. <laughs> who knows? You know what I mean? I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm just saying. But uh, yeah, I just know from the movie, Scott was was listed as the director, and Jim was directed was listed as the director of photography. So uh, it was awesome. We also got a chance to work with uh, our our main man Joseph Gervasi of Exhumed Films and Diabolic DVD, and um, we also had 
and our ever-present and uh, ever-supportive Evan Valella with us, who, uh, although he didn't say anything, which is why it's worth mentioning. And then we had Mr. Mike McTernan, Mike DC from Damnation AD in One Tiger's Fight. He was with us to add a edge of legitimacy to our youthful queries into this DC documentary. It is interesting. We've done this twice now where we have someone on who is familiar with uh, what it is we're talking about. They're familiar with that scene. They're familiar with uh, more of the specifics. But as an individual, they are a soft-spoken person. Mike DC is not a talkative guy. Yeah. <laughs> it was like when we had Bull on. We had Joseph's brother Bull on. And uh, Bull's great, and he knows a lot about... All right, we're back. Sorry, we had a little bit of technical difficulties there, folks. All right, hopefully we won't have any more of those. Yeah. You know, the <laughs> the internet, it's not reliable. Yeah, it might not be the internet. It might be the... Uh... It's not the tool of the internet. It's the tools using the internet. <laughs> you're saying it's user. You're blaming user error, huh? I, I blame myself. It's somehow my fault, I'm sure. <laughs> so anyway, so we were talking about having Bull with us when we spoke with Bill Perrine from the It's Gonna Blow San Diego Underground Music from 1986 to 1996. Right. He had toured in San Diego and played at the the Che Cafe a bunch of times with his bands and everything. And yet when we got to the interview, he definitely was the more soft-spoken of the three of us, counting Joseph as well, which is pretty funny. I love Mike DC. I'm really glad that Mike DC was able to be with us. Uh, I just, like I said, no offense to him or anything. I just, uh, there were definitely multiple times where I thought, man, I'd really like Mike DC to jump in and whatever. But uh, we're glad he, he had a few... Really good questions. Uh, when you're listening to the episode, folks, you're not going to be able to hear him very well. We had <laughs> microphone issues. Uh, we didn't have the problem we usually have, so we don't have a lot of echo. It doesn't sound too bad. But uh, while we were doing the interview, this microphone, the one I'm on right now, actually, and it's doing pretty well. But while uh, while we were doing the interview, it, it just kept cutting out. <laughs> it was very awesome. weird. Yeah, it's it's very Cinepunks. Yeah, I mean, that's... We're kind of like a rambling cavalcade of catastrophe. So, we are working at rectifying that situation, however. Yeah, we we have plans in the works. We're going to share with you guys real soon. Uh, We just, you know, it takes a lot of work to get these things together. Uh, So, we're doing the work right now to try to uh, get some money together and, uh, you know, improve our sound quality a little bit. Uh, Improve our recording scenario a little bit. I mean, that's what it boils down to is that uh, once we have reliable equipment and a reliable way to use that equipment, I think uh, it's going to sound a lot better. Uh, it's going to sound professional. <laughs> it's going to have a sound quality befitting the topics, the lofty topics that we discuss on a biweekly basis. And we're going to go so corporate with it. Like, we're going to start wearing suits and. Uh, oh, man. Exxon will be branding everything. If, if you could see us now, we look so good. It's true. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel yeah. a little uncomfortable with the Halliburton face tattoo I got, but I know it's going to pay off. Someone in the neighborhood called me a dandy fop today, which I felt kind of weird about because I live in Kensington. But, you know, do you live in reward. do you live in Kensington, England? Why they call you a dandy fop? <laughs> were they were they transplanted here? From like Victorian <laughs> London, I don't understand what's going on. 
I feel like he might know you. I don't know. It's weird, but whatever, man. I was like, look, these tassels don't come cheap, homeboy. <laughs> Keep that PCPMA going, brother. That was, and then I gave him the, the fist. That's strange. What? I find that strange. Yeah. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. When you said he might know me, were you saying he might be homeless? Is that what you were going for? No, no. I was implying that you told him to make fun of me. Oh, I would never (laughs) tell anyone to make fun of you. (laughs) Well, let's be clear. I would never tell anyone to call you a dandy fop. (laughs) I don't understand. Hey, man. Rap life is real life. You know what I'm saying? I I would go with net life is real life. That would I I wanted one of those shirts that was like you know talk shit on the net. Of course, then again, I probably should avoid that. That was an old me. Now that I've officially gotten in Twitter arguments with dudes who could beat me up, I'm, I should avoid that sort of thing. <laughs> Still one of the funniest things of the year so far. Yeah, let's leave that alone. I don't want to get back into that. We're not going to talk about it because we're bigger than that. Yeah, that's why. You know not saying? not because of my fear. But because we're no, bigger no, than no. that. We're above it all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, should we do – we're going to do uh, Whacking on Track, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the movie. So uh, like we said, we interviewed uh, Scott Crawford and uh, Jim Saw, who made this movie Salad Days about uh, DC Hardcore 1980 to 1990 roughly. Uh, and uh, when we talked to them, we hadn't seen the movie yet. So we had you know some – specific questions for them about the making of the movie but uh we didn't have anything sort of based on having actually seen it so now that we've seen it we can talk uh, a little bit more to each other about it uh about what we thought i think we you know spoiler alert i think we both liked it a lot yeah 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 i thought it was pretty awesome um there really wasn't anything that i felt was missing that i wanted to know about it pretty much covered everything that i loved about dc hardcore from the 90s Hmm. wouldn't you agree yeah, I agree. I agree. Let's start though. Did you have anything whack or on track you wanted to share with our uh, amazing listening audience? Well, listening audience, um, let me think. Something whack that has happened lately. Um, I don't know. Nothing really whack I can think of. Um, on track, however, I just saw what we do in the shadows, um, which is uh, the uh, fake documentary done by. Um, Jermaine Clement of Flight of the Flight of the Concords, and I'm going to murder the name Taika Watiti. Oh uh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So in conjunction with Funny or Die, they made this like mockumentary style movie about four vampires that are roommates, and um, they're getting it's like months before this like ball that they're. Have you heard about this? No, I so. I will I will say this yet again because I've said this a few times, both to people individually and on the podcast. If you have Hulu, watch the trailers on Hulu because a lot of people I know were like, "Oh, I've never heard of that. I didn't see anything about that." And that trailer's been on Hulu for months, like months and months, actually. Like as soon as they had a trailer, they put it up. So I saw it. What I wasn't aware of is if it was ever going to play in this country or not. Like I hadn't. I remember they were doing a Kickstarter to try to uh, do distribution in the U.S., so the fact that you got to see it is pretty cool. Yeah, it's still playing at the Ritz at the Bourse. Um, it should be at the time of you listening to this episode. But, uh, man, it was hilarious. I mean, it wasn't one of those movies that you watch and you're, like, dying, like, throwing up because it's so funny. It's one of those movies, though, that if you love horror movies and if you specifically love the vampire brand of horror movies, 
it plays on a lot of the tropes in those movies, and it's really, really fucking funny. And those dudes are just naturally hilarious. I mean, Reese Darby's in it, and I think that dude is amazingly funny. Like, he is one of my favorite Kiwi comedians of all time. Every time I hear that dude say anything, I'm just cracking up. He was the manager in Flight of the Concords, if you don't know who he was. So, um, I don't know, is Flight of the Concords a dated reference now? Do people know that yet still? You know, I think it's still to some extent relevant. I mean, it is a little, it is a little weird, like, uh, cause it was only on HBO for two seasons, right? I don't think they did yeah, a third yeah. season. Uh, and they've talked about bringing it back. Uh, and a lot of people know who's the other guy, not Jermaine. Um, Brett. Brett. Brett um, I forget his last name. Well, he's he's done a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. He worked on the Muppet movie and uh, a few other movies he's been involved with. So I think he's starting to get a name for himself for people who pay attention, that sort of thing. But only mm-hmm. I think only Jermaine has done a, a number of things in front of the camera, but none of those things really uh, took off. So, for example, he did that Eagle versus Shark movie. Oh, Bear uh, versus Shark. Eagle versus oh, yeah. Shark. Eagle versus Shark, yes. Yeah, yeah. Bear versus Shark is the band. Remember that band? Oh yeah, yeah sorry, yeah, yeah. double sorry. No, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, Eagle versus Shark was a fun movie, but I don't think a lot of people saw it. I don't know that it did well in the theater. I mean, I'm not a big box office person, but just talking to people uh, that I know, uh, it's one of those movies that people don't bring up a lot. Doesn't it doesn't come up very much? So I I don't know. Uh, other than Flight of the Concords, how much impact they're having. But I know a lot of people have mentioned this movie to me. I don't know if it's because of online stuff or whatever, but a lot of people have brought it up to say, I want to see it. I'm interested in seeing it. You know, a few people have asked me if I know how they can see it, if they're not in the Philly area. So, yeah, dude, it's totally a movie that you should see because it has some amazing lines in it. It's all, it's all improv. Which, you know, I mean, like, all the all the um, dialogue is improvised and everything. So there wasn't a script, from what I understood. But it is hilarious. It's so funny. Like, some of the stuff in there just had me screaming. Again, it's not one of those movies where you're, like, rocking the whole time. You know what I mean? But, like, they're just, like, real subtle hints of stuff in there that stay with you that are really, really funny. So that was way on track for me. So um, I haven't seen... Uh, we also, since we've last talked... Have we talked about Metalhead? No, and I didn't get to see it. So uh, uh, I put that on my whack list. I thought that was whack. Tell me about I mean, tell me about that. I part of the reason I didn't go see it. I mean, I needed to get home. It didn't make sense for me to go see it anyway. But one of the reasons I didn't go out of my way was because you said it was kind of whack. Well, Metalhead is a Norwegian family drama wherein, um, like, in the first ten minutes of the movie, this young lady who's like the daughter of this relatively normal and happy uh, family that she has a brother who's like in the metal and stuff. And um, there's this horrible accident in like the first five minutes of the movie and the brother dies. And then this young lady then um, uses heavy metal as like a coping mechanism. And she starts going through her adolescent changes and all that stuff. Like she starts wearing black and like leather coats and iron maiden t-shirts and all this stuff. And, um, you know, the movie culminates and I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but basically what it is, is a family drama where one of the weird radicals of the movie is that one of the kids listens to Burzum and like mayhem and stuff like that. So, um, but it just, it seemed really outsider. Like I didn't, 
it, it didn't feel like um, a fair representation of uh, of what it's like to be a member or at least an appreciator of a subculture. It felt very like, oh, you know, I'm seeing this on TV, so I'm going to start wearing lots of eye makeup and corpse paint. And, you know, it's just, it seemed very superficial, very touristy to me. And um, because of that, I mean, it was beautifully shot. It looks really nice. And um, the way it's, it's very slick in its representation of Norway, like, because it's very, you know, how, like, um, if you watch other movies, like Leviathan had that same thing, very Tarkovsky, like, Lots of, like, long shots of nature and, like, lots of, like, um, long pans with no words. This kind of thing. Like, it had a lot of that in it. But in the end, the narrative was just so janky. Like, it just didn't make any sense. In, like, an, just, emo- in like an emotional sense? Like, it didn't make sense for the characters? Or what part of it? Like, how did it not make sense? Or was it still just the uh, cultural aspect where they're just not getting metal right? Uh, partly, mostly because they're just not getting the metal aspect of it right. Because that is the culture, ultimately, that they're selling us, right? Right. Um, The the thing is, uh, a spoiler alert. The movie ends with the woman headbanging to records in her room with her parents. So you have, like, this weird... It just seemed like if ABC Family did a movie where one of the characters wore corpse paint. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I, I mean, mean no- were you expe- were you expecting it though to be something else, like for it to be like a real metal movie, like by Metalhead? I here's the thing. So um, the one that had um, a Robert Love, the where he's in the group with the with the nature people, and then he's in the black metal band, and then, a spell to ward off darkness. A spell to ward off darkness. Now that movie made sense in the lexicon of heavy metal, of specifically black metal and underground culture in general, because it felt legitimate. That movie felt honest. You know what I mean? This movie, I mean, I, okay. So I'm going to spoil it. Can I spoil it? Is that bad? Should I not? I mean, let's just say right now, Josh is about to spoil the movie Metalhead. If you care about that, you should fast forward by like, I don't know, a minute or two minutes or three minutes. I don't give a fuck. I feel conflicted. But okay, so in the movie, she's really bummed that her brother died, right? And then she gets into this whole like blaming God because now she's listening to metal. And this culminates, of course, in Nordic metal fashion with her burning down the village's church. She burns down the church. There's a church burning scene. It's intense. The one priest who's trying to help her actually listens to heavy metal. And she's just going through all these changes. And then it comes out that, like, the family gets caught and they realize that she's the one who had burned down the church. So instead of, like, I don't know, putting her in jail... They do this whole thing where they forgive her, and then together, her and the metalheads rebuild the church. <sighs> I don't know. You get what I'm saying at here, man. Like it I'm seems, saying- it, it seems like uh, the emotional core of the movie doesn't really make sense for you. No, it 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 resonates in more of a you know quasi Judeo Christian dogma as opposed to an understanding of what committing yourself to a musical subculture is like. Well, I do think it's strange, the whole, because my brother died, I'm now going to burn down a church. Uh, Not just because lots of people's responses to 
to grief is not necessarily to commit acts of vandalism. That in of itself is kind of weird. But I, I think more to the only extent that the people in Norway who are that committed to burning down a church don't have reasons as personal as their brother dying. It's actually a larger, like they see themselves as part of a cause. You know what I mean? Like yeah. maybe not as political, but it's, you know, that statement is not a personal, it's not, I'm mad about this, so I'm going to, you know, but then again, I didn't see the movie, so. Yeah, see, I don't know. It's It just seems to, it seems so twisted with what I understand to be the ethos of Norwegian black metal. Sure. And then have this family drama play out with that. Like, not that I think that the guys in fucking, um, you know, I don't think that, like, heavy metal dudes that like to wear bullet belts and stuff, like, they all, like, you know, kill their parents and then just go out and live with, like, amplifiers for their guitars and then play Beastie Riches and, like, you know, they all just have long hair and stuff. Like, I don't think that there's, like, some weird, like, you know... Not, I mean, I, I, I get it. People come from places, right? And, like, if you're, you know, your parents, and you, just because you listen to Leviathan doesn't mean that you're going to be out there with, like, a flamethrower and burning, like, you know, churches down and all that stuff. I mean, it'd be cool so, if you so, did. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, let's be honest. Leviathan is pretty awesome. But I'm saying, like, you know, it just... I feel as though when you take subcultures and you try and place them into movies like this, it never, ever works. It never, ever comes out as legitimate. Like, I don't know. Do you ever see any? Um, let me think. Are there any movies where We've, straight edge kids are in it? Well, uh, yeah, there was briefly that movie that the guy from Strife was in, right? What was that movie called? God Money? Uh, maybe. Uh, was that it? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that a movie with straight edge in it? Um, I didn't see it because yeah, the I guy didn't from see Strife either. was in it. Oh, you. The other movie was, uh, what was it? It was the, the Murder City Devils guys. They did a movie called, uh, The Age of Quarrel. And it was like a punks vs. Straight Edge Kid movie, like The Greasers and the Socias. Which makes really? sense. Cause let's, yeah, yeah, let's be honest, man. A bunch of those Straight Edge kids, not calling anyone out. But, you know, it's a very white male middle class phenomenon <laughs> now I, now i want to see that movie uh we've had this conversation before where you actually don't approve of subcultures in movies and i do not agree like i've often thought i i do not have the wherewithal to make a movie maybe someday i will uh decide that's that's how i should be spending my time and try to concoct a movie but the idea that i would open with a character living in the city and do their sort of like morning montage routine and have it be you know literally a song from age of coral that gets my cinematic boner up like that to me <laughs> is such a sick idea and i'm and i'm for it i'm for the use of punk and hardcore you know the more anthemic songs. I mean, you don't have to put like your friend's band in a movie or something, but, uh, f- for example, as far as a movie coming up that I'm excited about, uh, there's that punks versus skins movie coming up that Patrick Stewart is in. What? I don't know about this. What oh this? yeah. 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 I'm trying to remember almost like an assault on precinct 13 style movie, like a bunch of punks find themselves in this club. And then there's all these white power skins and they're trying to like escape. You know, I'm trying to, I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. Oh man. And it's funny. Cause I think some, uh, some people are very excited about it and some people are very skeptical of it all based upon, um, this director's other movies. Hold on. Let me see if I found it right here. Uh, upcoming film. It's called green room is the name of the movie. 
Oh, I did hear about that. Jeremy Saulnier. Do you know this guy? No. All right. So, yeah, it's called Green Room, and, and Patrick Stewart's like the villain. Oh, okay. So it's the guy who directed Blue Ruin, which did anyone – if you seen Blue Ruin, anyone who's seen Blue Ruin can tell you that, like, Blue Ruin has a pretty – Anyone who's seen Blue Ruin can uh, can testify to the fact that Blue Ruin has a sequence in a metal club that is surprisingly like realistic. Mm-hmm. It does. It yeah, does. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, so I Green Room. It, as far as I'm concerned, the only subculture that successfully was represented in a movie, fairly, I think, was This Is England. That's the only movie I can think of where I was like, yeah, it seems about legitimate. I could see that. I mean, like I said, we've disagreed about this before. I like, uh, to some extent, Hollywood punks. Like, I think it's funny. Oh yeah, I you like do. You I like the that. fake you punks. And, uh, and I would love. I would. I think you're right in that there hasn't been a super accurate portrayal. But you know, it can be hard because subcultures are they sort of break apart in so many directions. You know what I mean? It's hard mm-hmm. to like sort of point that out, but. I bet we're wrong. In fact, I would ask our audience, have you ever seen a movie that had punks, uh, hardcore kids, metalheads, uh, or whatever subculture represented fairly? Um, I would say, you're right, This Is England is pretty fair. I can't think of... I feel like there's other ones I've seen. Rupa Man? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Rupa Man is a great punk movie. Well, there are other punk movies, like Dudes. Remember Dudes? Flea is in there. And... um yeah, but I mean, the thing about dudes is that it's not like about the subculture in that way, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You're right. Uh, Anyways, it doesn't matter. Point is, uh, uh, back to what we were saying before. You didn't. You thought metalhead was metalhead was whack. Yeah, I was not into it. As far as whack, I recently uh, watched a documentary for Synapse. Uh, we have that two cents column. Which, by the way, uh, if y'all want to keep up with that, Synapse is a, a website that my friend runs. I occasionally write for, and I help edit sometimes. Uh, and it's a pretty good site. And on that site, uh, there's a column called Two Cents, where we pick a movie of the week, and people submit like 200 words or less about that movie. So uh, participation hasn't been that high lately. So if you feel like you have time in a week to write, I mean, 200 words is like a, a small email. You know, it's like not a lot to write yeah. uh if you're someone who thinks you would be interested in participating in that we're looking for that's for anybody that's not like if you think you're an expert on movies at all so we watched this movie called drew the man behind the poster and uh it's about drew struzan who uh if you've never heard of drew struzan i'd recommend checking him out he's an artist who's done you know famous album covers and posters for like indiana jones back to the future goonies the thing like police academy movies he's just done all these movie posters and the documentary is sort of about his life and now he got into art and all that and i love true and i bought the i have a big book that's like a his collection of things uh i would buy his prints like i just think he's a great artist man that movie was so boring like i don't know if i've seen <laughs> a more boring documentary in a long time like that was just and i felt bad because i, I think i'm supposed to like it out of like a respect for Drew Struzan, but no, like there's just no way like that. I, uh, I was, I, 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 I actually can't remember the last time I was that bored watching a movie. <laughs> well, bad movie's a bad movie, man. 
Yeah. You know? It was a shame because, like I said, I love his artwork. I guess the s- stories about how stuff got done, you know, like, for example, when he made that Thing poster, he knew nothing about the movie. Someone just said, did you ever see The Thing, the 1954? Yeah, or I think it's 54. It was the, the old movie, you know. You ever seen The Thing? Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah. Yeah, they're remaking it. That's it. That's all they told him to make yeah. that poster. So like <laughs> what that's poster was it? Which one? For the John Carpenter one. No, no. Was it the silhouette with the guy in the parka? Like what was? Yeah, the... that's you don't know. Oh, so you're not a Drew Struzan person? You don't know much about no, this stuff. I don't know much about Drew Struzan. Oh, no. get on the internet and look it up. Basically, every iconic poster from the late seventies through the eighties is Drew Struzan. Okay. Like that is him. He is. Like the Star Wars, like oh yeah, uh, especially uh-oh. you know the the triptych when they release a special edition of the three Star Wars posters that go together. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Drew Struzan. That's like him and oh. a paintbrush. Like he's unbelievable. That's awesome. No, yeah. he's amazing. Like so much respect for him. Um, and yet the movie, not so good. I could knock it down. It really bummed me out. What a bummer. Yeah, so Man. that's a, a whack. But on track, I got to say, uh, I went to the theater to see this movie that's out. I think it's still out. I don't know if it's still in Philly, but it's it's in a few markets still. Uh, two Days, One Night. Oh, I have not seen it. How was it? Was it good? It was great. I, it mm. might, like, I don't know. I'm assuming it's a 2015 release. If it was a 2014 release and it just got here late, it would be, like, in my top five. Uh, wow. If I keep it in mind, it'll probably end up being in my top five for 2015. It's It was awesome. And it's a very simple story, just really basic, very quiet. It's not, like, dramatic. But it takes this really simple idea. Uh, there's It's set in France. It's a French movie. A uh, woman is out of work for a while because uh, she's dealing oh, wait, with depression. Yeah, with Marion Cotillard. That's yeah. the one? Yeah. Oh. And she's, she's dealing with depression. And the movie starts with uh, the boss has told the employees that they can make a choice. She can either have her job back or they can get their bonus. And so the movie's just a weekend of her going to people's houses and trying to talk them into letting her get her job back and how difficult that is and kind of embarrassing it is. It's just – it's very human. Nothing dramatic happens. No one tries to kill her or anything crazy like that. But it's dramatic in how real it is. Like you feel it. It's just – it was an emotionally demanding movie with a very simple, relatable topic. And for me – I don't know if it meant to be this, but the movie to me is so much about capitalism. It's so much about yeah. how management will always dehumanize labor. Like it just will. Like that's why wouldn't it, you know? And yeah. and the movie never makes a political point, but the movie itself is almost a political point just because it's so real. You know what I mean? Wow. So I loved it. Man, I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, I think that's a that's good. That's our good whacking on track. We need to jump into because uh, uh, the interview is you know it's a little long. It's not too long. It's shorter than some it's of the other interviews hour. we've done. Yeah, it's about a little less than an hour. So, uh, as far as salad days, I want to start off with this. Uh, it, do you think salad days is possibly uh, the best punk documentary you've seen? I think it's the most um, inclusive. Of the punk documentaries that we've seen lately, sure. Um, I don't know if it's the best because I still I really liked it's going to blow. I really liked um, filmage. I really liked a lot of the ones I've seen recently that I think are awesome. But as far as music that I care about goes, this music, like we got to talk 
with um with Scott about like One Last Wish and Rights of Spring and Fugazi. Like these bands were there they were the uh the they were the epitome of aggressive music to me when I got to it. You know what I mean? Like when sure. I got to the point where where caring about music and music meaning something was was a little bit more important to me, they were the bands that introduced me to that concept. So so being able to talk to people about those movies about those records and stuff, it was awesome. I mean like and, and even like Swizz is in there, you know, like I love Swizz, Halo of Snakes, my band we, we loved Swizz, all of us like love Swizz a lot. And um Dag Nasty. It was cool just to see like all these interesting little stalwarts. Uh the one caveat that we had, the one issue sure. that I had was that when we screened it, it was at Underground Arts and um unless you were sitting in the front row you didn't know what the bottom titles were. And that's where all the names for all the people and the bands that were in were, were displayed. So I didn't know any of the people except for the people who I just kind of knew who they were, like Brian Baker and like uh, Kevin Inoue and like all those dudes. Like, nope, uh, Ian McKay, like, you know, you know those guys. But then like the lesser known people, like the dudes from Soulside, I don't know what that guy's name is. I never will. You know, because unless I rent this movie or, or purchase it so I can watch it at home. Well, let so me let me thing. let me just interrupt real quick and say I I want to make sure we separate <laughs> the viewing experience from the movie itself. So I want to talk more about the movie itself. But yeah, let's do a second. I can't remember the last time I had a viewing experience as bad as this. Yeah, yeah, it was a rough and, one. And the I don't and, and, not a movie theater. Yeah, and I don't want to make it about that because I don't think that's fair to the Salad Days guys. And I think they were great to talk to, and I think the movie's really great. So I want to focus on that. But just as I mean, we just can't. You can't not mention the fact that the Underground Arts is a terrible venue for film. I mean. Let's be honest. We've talked trash about Underground Arts as a venue for music in the past, <laughs> just in the sense that it doesn't sound great. You have to have a lot of people in that room for it to sound well. But that wasn't the yeah. issue here. The issue here is having a projector where things are blocking the projection. That doesn't work. Like, that's not okay. Yeah. And having the screen set up in such a way that you just can't see the full screen. So you're right. A lot yeah. of the titles show up at the bottom of the screen, and we couldn't see them. Then, and this is... You know, the, the projection thing, you could at least say, well, Underground Arts is a music venue. They don't know anything about movies. It's not their fault that they messed that up. But I will say I was not happy with the way that the crowd was dealt with. One, yeah. in that they, they, you know, they sold, they sold it way past the seats they had, which is expected. That's fine. But then all the people who were standing up, no one was explaining to them that if they're back there yelling at the top of their lungs, then you can't hear the movie. So, that was really distracting. And at a certain point, there was a drunk woman who I guess was just not agreeing with the movie or didn't appreciate the movie and was like catcalling or not – I guess not catcalling. She was heckling the no. movie, which – She was she was yelling at Fugazi. And here's the thing about heckling a movie. If you want to heckle a band, <laughs> at least that logically makes sense. I might get mad at you about it, but at least there's someone there. How can you heckle a movie? They don't know what the fuck you're saying. <laughs> Here's the funny thing that happened when when we were talking to Scott and uh, uh, we're, we're talking to him and uh, Jim. We we were, one of the questions we asked. You'll hear it in the interview. Was we were like, so was there anyone you couldn't get in touch with for the movie? And their answer was, well, we tried to get in touch with the Bad Brains guys, and we couldn't. We just couldn't find them. They're all geographically dispersed. We don't know. We don't have any good contact. Whatever. So we leave the back room where we did the interview. We walk into the main room where they're doing the screening. And sitting there eating popcorn 
is HR. H motherfucking R. And he's just sitting there eating popcorn, just head to toe in camo. Just awkwardly sitting there scarfing popcorn, just eating it yeah. unabashedly. And uh, I went to talk to Scott, and he was like, yo, that's HR sitting right there. That, and I was like, that's him, right? That's HR. And he's like, yep, HR sitting right there eating the popcorn. Lo and behold, <laughs> classic picture was taken that night by Liam of me and Evan with HR. It was crazy. It was just so funny that that was the one band they had trouble connecting with. And dude's just hanging out. And here's the thing. He's sitting next to this girl. And it's after... His wife. That was his wife. That was his wife? Yeah, the white lady. I had no idea. She kept wiping him off every time he was going to take a picture with a fan. It was really funny. I couldn't help myself. He would just turn to her. Someone would come over and ask if they could take his picture. And he would turn to her and she would reach over and wipe off all the popcorn bits from his body. And then he would stand up to take the picture. (laughs) HR, man. He's crazy. Dude, awesome. Liam, I got to go because I got to cook dinner. Oh, man. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to wrap up then. This is a quick little episode for everybody. Uh, So to uh, summarize, Salad Days was really good. Yeah, thanks again to Scott and uh, and Jim, and also thanks again to our man Joseph, uh, Mike McTurnan, and Evan, who is one of us because he is our homeboy and we love him. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I got to cook dinner. Sorry, guys. All right. That's good. Okay. Very good. Anyway. Um, yep. So enjoy the, enjoy the interview, and we'll be back soon with uh, more uh, stuff to talk about with movies. And if you get a chance, go see Salad Days. It, uh, it covers a lot of different bands. Uh, it gets really in-depth with a lot of stories. I haven't seen that much detail about the Discord guys as I saw in that movie, so I, I think it's definitely worth your time. Definitely an awesome movie. Thank you so much. All right. All right, y'all. Uh, thanks for listening. We're going to cut over to that interview right now. Uh, sorry to Scott and Jim. They were very anxious to hear what we thought about the movie. Uh, we liked it a lot. I thought it was really handled really well. And uh, we wanted to spend a little more time talking about it. We just didn't get a chance to. So we'll hit it up again on the next episode just to let you guys know some of the details. But it was very it was very Discord-focused. Uh, they didn't focus as much on some of the other bands. But those are most of the bands you're going to know anyway are the bands that are on Discord. Uh, but I thought the whole thing was done really well. I learned lots of things I hadn't known before. I actually saw, you know, as a guy who's kind of obsessive about uh, bands, there were still uh, bands and artists featured that I didn't know anything about. And I heard a lot of stories I had never heard before uh, in that film. Uh, I thought it was it was filmed well. It was edited together well. It had a really great pace. Um, so I can't recommend it enough. Then it, it ends It ends uh, right at the height of... Uh, of Fugazi sort of popularity. Um, as we know, there's a lot of DC bands that did some good things after that. So maybe they'll do a follow up where they talk about like 90 to 2000 DC bands. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, enjoy the interview. Uh, and thanks to Josh for taking time out of his schedule to record, uh, an intro with me. Uh, I just wanted to stay on after and say how much I appreciate him doing. Thanks a lot. And tell your friends about us. Okay. Bye. Okay. I'm Liam O'Donnell. I'm Josh Alvarez, and welcome to episode 25 of Cinepunks. 26. 26 of Cinepunks. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. You yeah, yeah. Over now? No, no. And um, we're happy today to have a couple guests with us. So uh, we are sitting with quite a few people, but let's start with our main guest, right. Scott Crawford. Mr. Scott Crawford is here today. Director of uh, Salad Days, uh, a documentary on DC Punk. Happy to be here. Thank you, guys. Have you... Actually, I didn't know that. I should have researched this ahead of time. Have you directed other things? This is my first. Wow. Okay, cool. We're going to get into that. Uh, also with us is uh, the amazing Joseph Gervaisi. 
Very good. Hello. I'm amazing. <laughs> and Good also, the wonderful Mike McTurnan. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. You're too soft-spoken for me. You, you gotta get in there, Mike. Yeah. You can Hello. love the microphone. <laughs> Once again, good afternoon. And, uh, and Wrong Evan is also here, but he's not gonna say anything. <laughs> uh, so, Scott, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Uh, I wanted to start with... Uh, just the most basic question. I'm sure you've had to answer a lot now. Why? Why this? Why DC? Why punk? Why this time period? Why this movie? That's a really good question. Um, well, you know, it's it's just one of those things. As I hit my 40s, it was uh, it was a period of time that I kept referencing and looking back to, and um, when it came to parenting and just you know just life choices and um felt like it hadn't really been documented in a way that um i felt it needed so i just was crazy enough to think that i could try and take it on myself and uh you know uh, having been friends with jim saw who photographed a lot of what happened uh in the 80s um in a very sort of iconic way i thought you know working together we could really create something um you know visually if nothing else that would be you know pretty spectacular um and um you know it just it was a period of time that um you know had been touched on in films like american hardcore um and you know a few others um but i just felt like you know why not give it its due yeah do you think that it was, oh, oh, go ahead, Joseph. Do you think that uh, the DC was treated fairly in American Hardcore? Was represented well in, in that documentary and, and the book? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I felt like they touched on a lot of the things that I um, wanted to address in the film, and I thought they did a great job. And here comes Jim Saw. Jim, uh, how do you do? The man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> um, we're also we also have one more guest that, that that's with us, Mr. Jim Saw, right? Yep. Your photographer and Very director, producer, photographer, editor. Welcome. Um, so I forgot. Oh, American Hardcore. Yeah. So I thought it was represented well. I just felt like I mean, America. You know, they were trying to represent the entire yeah. you know national U.S. American you know hardcore scene. So DC got just like a lot of other cities got ten minutes or whatever it was or mm-hmm. less. Um, and that's kind of where I got the the original idea was. You know, I had seen so many. I'd met so many character, you know, just so many larger than life personalities, and 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 um, and seen so many great things during that period that you know had never really been talked about. So I just felt like, you know, why not make a film about it? And knowing Jim and knowing his talents and his abilities, um, I just felt like you know we could do something kind of cool. So, <laughs> how did what was your personal involvement in it? Like, did you feel? a distance from the subject or was this like nostalgic going back to your roots and your history a little bit? Well, I, um, you know, the first show I, the first shows I went to were when I was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'll do now just 43. Okay. May I ask what your first show was? Um, well, the first real, I mean, uh, rock against Reagan would have been, so that was 83. It was MDC. But I, you know, as far as like one of the first bands that I really saw in a cl- like a club, which wasn't really a club, it was actually a basement of a church, was Void. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, but 
so and then a few months later i started doing a fanzine Mm. so i did a fanzine for almost three years it was i think i stopped doing it in my freshman year of high school so that would have been three years i guess um and that's how i got what was it called a metro zine you know metropolitan dc so um and that's how i actually met jim and you'll see it in the film um I had read his fanzine, which was called Zone 5, yeah. which was a photo zine. And I had a lot of the pages torn out, and they were on my walls, you know. And I said, you know, when I started doing the fanzine, I said, you know, I called him out of the blue. I, I forgot who told me you're, that you worked at um, Waxy Maxi's, which was a record store yeah. in Maryland. And I forgot who told me that, but someone did, and I just cold called him. And um, I just said, you know, like, hey, uh... Because I hadn't hit puberty yet. <laughs> hey, uh, can I take some of the photos out of your fanzine and put them in mine? And then he was like, fuck you, kid. And uh, I don't know if I can say that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah no, you okay. can say whatever you want. Totally cool. And Jim was even, at 19, was a curmudgeon even then. And he was like, <laughs> fuck you, kid. But um, anyway, and that's how I got to know him. So uh, we've known each other since. So it's been over 30 years. How do you come to be going to hardcore shows at such a young age? Uh, I basically, I was, you know, my parents just, you know, or my mother just said, get the fuck out of the house. I don't really want to see you anymore. No, um, uh, I just, you know, it, um, let's see, my best friend's older sister, who I had a crush on, who was gorgeous, uh, listened to, like, all this DC heart, and I had no idea what this shit was. I mean, at that point, I was listening, I think one of the first singles I ever bought was, um, I think I bought a flock of seagulls single. I can't remember, but um, and I was I can into guess which one it is. I was into yeah, and I was into like all that like Brit new wave stuff, and I thought I was really cool at like eleven or whatever, like reading Trouser Press and like into Kaja Gugu and stuff. And um, and then I discovered all this like, and she, and I would walk by her room and it, and she'd be like going nuts to like Minor Threat and Scream and Government all these uh, classic hardcore bands, and I get, I think what initially for me probably got me interested was just the amount of times that they said fuck um yeah and you know so that got me really interested and then um i remember one afternoon i was just like i walked in i was like what is this and she goes sit down like i'm gonna change your life and she played me i remember i was still screaming it just and out of step teenager in a box that's all I remember. So, um, and then after that, and then once I, and then I started going to record stores, all the local record stores. There was like three of them, right? Joe's, Y&T, and oh yeah, I didn't, yes, I didn't venture down to Georgetown because it was too far, and my father refused to drive to Georgetown. The traffic was too bad. Vinyl Link was like later eighty six, maybe. So this is two records. Anyway, uh, and then I realized, holy shit, this stuff's happening in my backyard like I didn't you know you're just you don't have any concept and then you realize this stuff's happening here like in your literally in your neighborhood Mm. and Scott uh, was lucky to have someone like introduce him I have I have a lot of older brothers and sisters that they introduced me to like the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan which was awesome but I had to discover punk rock on my own and then uh, it was actually Rocky Horror Picture Show, which uh, went down to just do some, get out of the suburbs, and then uh, actually some of the people that were integral into the DC scene, um, Danny Ingram and stuff, would DJ before the movie played, 
So I heard like a lot of British stuff, um, the Stranglers, and uh, and then local stuff, and uh, you know, I mean, I had the same experience. I went to a record store, Joe's, and the first two singles I bought were um, "Don't You Want Me, Baby" by the Human League and "Nazi Punks Fuck Off" by the Dead Kennedys. <laughs> And I was just like, I found that receipt. I still own it. And I was just like, wow. I was just like, this I would, is I would all like to cool. receive that mixtape. Yeah. So it's like, here, I made you a mix. It was just all new and it yeah. was all cool. I wasn't, you know, I realized, you know, I got more discerning later. Yeah. So uh, you said this is the first film that you've you've made. Right. Is this the first film that you've worked on? I've shot on many films and been a, been a shooter, but uh, it's the first one that I've um, edited and produced a feature length. Hmm. And were you working in filmmaking before? So, th- so uh, this is sort of what the reason I'm asking it this way specifically is: was it this is a story you wanted to tell? Let's do a movie, or was it I want to tell the story and I'm already involved, or I already care about film, or something like that? Well, I mean, so. I you know did a fanzine when I was a kid, and then I never stopped. So I I stopped. I mean, well, that's not true. I, I stopped when I hit high school. Yeah. And then I started another fanzine in like ninety. And then I started another one in like ninety three. And then I would just start them, and then they would kind of reach this nice little, and then they would just what for whatever. Well, let's see. So the the one in ninety was called. Um, I think noise works, and then the other one's called. And then a couple of years later, another one was called Bent. And these were all. I was working with great. Re- I mean, like you know, Jason Pettigrew, who's now the editor at Alternative Press, was uh, one of my contributors to the zine, and all these great writers. And um, so I never really stopped writing about music. What's that? And photographers. And oh I yeah, shot and there's some guy named Jim Saw was a photographer too. <laughs> and um, and then uh, a couple of, and then I had a kid, and then. And then, like, 2000 came around, and um, I just decided to start another one. And uh, But this one I really wanted to make a living at, so I wanted it to be glossy, and I wanted it to be full color, and blah, blah, blah. So I started it. It was called Harp. And then, like, a year later, another magazine publishing company bought it. And so I ran that for seven years and continued to work with Jim That's throughout great. that whole time. So I never really stopped writing about music, and so I was the editor in chief for those magazines so i had you know so my background is kind of you know just writing about this stuff Mm. so so um for you and for mike and for for jim like this documentary covers from 1980 to 1990 yeah roughly so um do you think what what is it about the dc scene at that time that made it special compared to the rest of the to hardcore punk rock scene in the country like it seems like just from my perspective being in this area a lot of the bands coming out at that time were very special but they also very pushed a lot of boundaries were not very you know first chorus verse etc etc so what is it about that scene or do you think something like that can come up again in today's climate like what is it that made it special well might be a dumb question i'm sure it's in the no no it's an integral question i um I'm going to defer to. I asked that same question to Jay Mascus, who grew up in the Boston area, mm-hmm. and uh, heard of him. I said, "What? Uh, <laughs> this didn't make it in the movie, but it's it's pretty. Cool. It might make it in the extras." But I said, "What made DC uh, different for you than the Boston scene?" And uh, he said, "Well, the DC bands were good." 
<laughs> and not just I mean I, that's not me saying that I'm not slighting Boston and there was a lot of good bands but that's from mm-hmm. you know um, I think that um, I think that they, there was just a lot of really smart um, people that could play mm-hmm. um, I mean the great thing about punk rock is that you didn't need to play didn't need to have chops mm-hmm. um, I've gotten into arguments you know <laughs> people with their like that are 10 years older than me that are like old hippies you know i'm an old punk rocker and you know they're like well you need chops you need to be like you know you need heart you know yeah you, to, you just um you know ramones didn't have chops but you know um, hey can i pause you one sec I'm, i feel like we're having a sound so uh, we, you sort of touched Josh sort of touched on this a little bit in asking about the specific time period but uh one of the things that a lot of people were very bummed about with American hardcore was when they're like, oh, you know, hardcore happened until this year, and then it just died, which is sort of like a fuck you to every kid who's trying to like be in it now, you know? And it seems like, at the very least, you have a larger period, but also from talking to you, you're still at least uh, interested in newer bands and shows and things like that. What do you... How does that happen for you as a uh, older person? A lot of people just don't care anymore. They, it just doesn't matter to them. How did you stay still passionate about it? And how do you think your movie differs in that way from uh, a movie like American Hardcore? Well, I guess um, I mean, you know, I put it. I you know, we put a date on our film as well. You know, eighty to ninety, roughly. But um, I don't to have such a hard, fast cutoff date on when something. You know, uh, you know, people said the same thing about punk rock uh, after the Pistols. You know, so which was complete bullshit. So um, I didn't really buy into that. But again, that's my own. Um, I, you know, maybe um, in other cities. Uh, I mean, I I know what they were trying to say. I know that. I think I think American Hardcore was eighty four or eighty five. Is that when it stopped? 80, I think it was eighty five. Okay, so I know that a lot of bands at that point were um, sort of uh, more interested in combining. I think like metal and stuff like that. Um, and when you look at when you think about bands like you know DRI or a lot of the hardcore bands that were happening around then, they were you could definitely. F- I mean, or you look at a band like SSD Control. I mean, look at that last album. You know, it was like. <laughs> I prefer not to, but um, but anyway, that was that was the direction that I think a lot of bands were going at that point. That, however, that wasn't really the fact. I mean, that wasn't really the case in DC. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not trying to speak for you know the rest of the country. I'm just saying my experience, what I saw in DC was. When a lot of these, ba- when a lot of other cities were looking at, were you know, were I think maybe uh, uh, more interested. I mean, you know, Gangrene, and you know, I, I'm just I'm throwing out names now, but like you know, um, a, you know, a lot of these major cities, you know, these a lot of these hardcore bands were were you know discovering guitar solos and you know whatever. But DC, it was like I can remember hanging out at yesterday and today, and asking you know. Brendan, you know, the drummer in Rites of Spring, like, what are, you, what are you listening to? And him playing me at the church, or, you know, that Petrol Motion, or Felt, like all these British pop bands. And so that was, like, 
that was kind of what I was seeing, and yet everywhere, you know, again, I shouldn't say everywhere, but a lot of the other major cities were um, focused more on metal, and, and I think here there was this, and I don't know why, but in my little world, I guess, it, it seemed to be more focused on, um, you know, just um, pop. I mean, you know, again, like, uh, I guess one good example would be, to, I mean, maybe this isn't the greatest example, but if you go back and look at, you know, uh, I mean, Guy from Rights of Spring was playing a Rickenbacker. I mean, who Very fucking British pop? Yeah, I mean, who the? F- n- I don't. I mean, I'm sure there are others, but I can't name a single guitar player at that point who was playing a fucking Rickenbacker. You know, <laughs> and that thing sounded like shit on stage. I mean, the the <laughs> the pickups were feedbacking. I mean, it was like horrible. But he played a Rickenbacker. You know, mm. so again, th- I think that was a nod to what they were in. You know, interested in and and even when you look at a bit, I mean, you know, Dagnasty. I love Dagnasty, and and they were not part of that world, and they were, you know, but even Government Issue. I mean, listen to a Government Issue record from '87. You know, I mean, Tom Lyle was playing sitars. You know, so anyway, I don't know if that answered your question. When I think of uh, DC hardcore, I often think of many of the participants coming from uh, somewhat affluent backgrounds, coming out of. Uh, parents being involved in government or professors, the diplomats, and so forth. Was there also a working class contingency coming out of the D.C. area? Yeah, I mean, I, um, we talk about that in the film. Um, Jim and I certainly were not, were not uh, uh, sons of... Um, we're not the fortunate sons. Yeah, I mean, we were both very working... You know, I mean, our parents were, you know, very... We were immigrants and yeah. owned, like, greasy spoons in D.C. Yeah, and stuff. well, mine didn't, but we were very um middle class and um so i think there was a lot of that um but the reason i wanted to address it in the film was that was something that as you just mentioned a lot of people you know referenced and um so from the sort of socio logical perspective it was something that i wanted to you know explore a little bit but uh but you know that doesn't mean that the entire scene was like that. Um, you just had people. I mean, Ian MacKay's father was a writer for the Washington Post. Um, you know, Ivor Hansen from uh, the Faith. Um, you know, his father was very high up in the in the Navy. Um, you know, you had all. You know, Kenny Inouye. Uh, his father was a senator from Hawaii. So, you know, you had these. You know, people that were involved and in, you know played amazing. You know. You know, we're in a great bands that happen to have that background, but uh, it doesn't mean that that was all of you know uh, of DC. I mean, you know, Jim and I came from the uh, Silver Spring, which is right over the DC line. Oh yeah, you know, and yeah. that's where we came. You know, and which is kind of a work, you know, semi working class, you know, suburb. Uh, was there anyone you wanted to talk to for the film that you could not get a hold of, or was there any sort of uh, footage you couldn't get, or what were what were sort of the white whales that you weren't able to nab for the for the movie? Um, you know, we tried pretty hard to track down the the bad brains guys. Um, uh, tried on several occasions, and you know, just couldn't make it happen for whatever reasons. Um, most of which were geographical. Uh, they were just, you know, um, uh, there was some, I think we pretty much got every, did we get all the, I mean, I would have liked to have had more Scream footage, um, who were such a phenomenal band, but there just isn't 
that much. I mean, we tried to kind of vet like the footage, and we didn't want to just throw anything in there. Um, I mean, we could have, but we wanted it to be. You know, we wanted. You know, we wanted it to look halfway decent, and a lot of the footage that's in the film in the very beginning is black and white, very grainy. Um, but I wanted to show also the you know sort of the evolution of like from 80 to 90 so when you see the footage from 80 it's like black and white grainy you don't know what the hell's going on to the end of the decade um some of which jim had shot um it's it, it's very different so but i think probably if there was footage that i will i i, I don't know, maybe dag nasty i felt like there wasn't enough dag nasty footage and there wasn't enough screen footage i mean is there someone i'm leaving out no i mean we do have both those bands but there's um there's uh, little of it. I mean, uh, it, it, it was, you know, our, it would be nice if our next movie is like a little later <laughs> because the 80s were just, it was a transitional period. Like no one owned video cameras, really. It was it was not till the late 80s where they became affordable. Like they were these big two-part things. And um, uh, so... It was it was very tough, but we we managed to come up with a lot of incredible um, footage, and I think we cover a, a lot of the seminal bands. Maybe, maybe a little more Dag Nasty um, of a uh, more you know higher quality, but I think the stuff we included was you know looks and sounds pretty good for the time. Um, you know, Scream. There just wasn't too much. They, like Scott said, they were an incredible live band. Um, so, uh, but I think the one that we got in there, like one or two things that really shows them off. So compared to like other music documentaries and other documentaries in general, just from the filmmaking aspect of what you guys have done, what are the things that you wanted to avoid? What are the things that you wanted to emulate in the making of this film in terms of how you wanted to see it play? Like what, as, as filmmakers, like switching gears from music fan to filmmaker, what were the things that you wanted to pay attention to or things that you wanted to avoid? And like, what other movies do you feel like that you took influence from? Well, personally, I, I made a point of not looking at too many other music documentaries. I just kind of had it in my head how I wanted it to look. And, um, um, I think the one thing Jim and I discussed pretty early on was just wanting it to be a little um, maybe slower paced than a lot of these um, that your average punk rock documentary that tends to be like you know like you know just bum, 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 you know just yeah we didn't want a million flyers yeah I didn't want like a thousand flyers and, and, and I didn't want like you know this barrage of barrage of music and flyers and foot. But obviously, you need to have that part of that culture represented as well. So um, I just wanted there to be a balance, and um, I think we talked about that pretty early on. And um, yeah, I mean, we wanted it to be like the—I mean, the music is very kinetic yeah. and and fast. But to juxtapose it with visuals that are, you know, like we wanted it to be more artful right. and more. You know, slow, like you said, and and I think it, um, I think they work together. As filmmakers, as documentarians, are there other documentarians whose work you've looked at or has informed? Maybe not necessarily this project, but you as filmmakers. Um, I mean, D. You know, Pennebaker is a big yeah. one for me. 
Yeah, don't um, look back. I've watched yeah. it like a dozen times, and I'm influenced by that cinema verite. And I wanted um, to have some of that, um, and I think we did. Um, but it's hard when you're, you know, I mean, he was in the moment, whereas we're talking about something that was 30 years ago. So all right. you can really capture is what these people that you're interviewing are feeling mm-hmm. in the moment. And, and That I think was the toughest thing. That was hard. And I think we were able, I think that, um, I think there were a few people that we spoke with where you could, you know, you saw that it was still, you know, meant something. And um, I think that was, you know, without sounding like a pretentious douchebag. But I think some of that was captured um, in the moment. Uh, sure. But it's, 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 it's hard when you're talking about something that was, you know, so long ago and to try and, um, you know, figure out what's, you know, revisionism and what is, you know, heartfelt and what's real and what, you know. So. I would imagine for many of these people, this experience that they had at the time has has moved forward in their lives and, and has affected the, their lives going forward. So when you say that they, you know, some of them show true emotion, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that because I would imagine that at such a formulative time in their life that it would have a tremendous impact and the reverberations would probably move forward. Yeah, I think people were all over the map with that. Like there were some people that um, still playing music and still very much. Um, Involved and some people that have moved on, but it still meant a whole lot to them. Like Mark Anderson or um, Mark Sullivan, um, who actually isn't in bands anymore, but is just speaks on it eloquently and um, really puts it in perspective. And then there's some people that maybe a little bitter that they wanted, maybe they thought they could be rock stars and Mm. it didn't happen. So it's really all over the map. But um, everyone. Uh, no matter what their take, um, are still really look at it as an important and life-changing time for them. How do you guys? I mean, we you know we've talked to now somebody else who did a documentary about like a specific time. Do you feel like your familiarity is only in like a positive, or did you have to balance out sort of? Uh, an objective viewpoint with a nostalgic viewpoint. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like you could take either view. You could say, well, we're close to it, so we understand it. But you could also say, well, but how do we create a distance so that we're not just saying, like, every band is great and everyone's so cool. We've had that that, conversation a lot during the film. And I I think initially, Jim, I think I told you, you know, pretty early on, like, that I wanted it to be as honest as we could make it. And that meant setting aside whatever stuff I might have. Um, because I certainly had my, you know, uh, you know the, the, the music that I loved or the bands that I loved. Um, you know, you had to set that aside. I knew enough people at that point as a you know, kid growing up, um, just hanging around, just hanging out in their, tor- you know, in their van and just listening. And, you know, being able to hear all the different viewpoints that weren't like mine. And I didn't necessarily, you know, just didn't necessarily agree with them at the time, but with thirty years of perspective, you know, you kind of went, oh, yeah, you know, I could see that. So I wanted a lot of that to be represented. Um, we also had a lot of, is this too inside baseball? Yeah, kind a lot of, of that you because know, we I, are very yeah, close to it. We fought. Uh, I'm not, not. I mean, yeah. internally, you yeah. know, just the the. 
I had, you know, I'm kind of a geek about this stuff, so I wanted to, you know, say, you know, I wanted to get a little more into, the, like, the weeds. And then I realized, you know, halfway through, like, no one gives a shit about a lot of this stuff. we got to, like, make it a little more, you know, for the general, um, you know, for the for the person that may not know that much about this stuff and may not even care. So you have to make it, you know, so I tried to stick to the larger issues. And I think it's a good mix because for people that do know, I think, I mean, I learned things by interviewing that grew up with, but there was things that, like the, like the last minor threat show, like people in the movie. Yeah, me too. All these people talk about how, oh, it was, it was sad and I went to that show and I thought it was fucking awesome. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was just like, that's the best thing ever. Yeah, he shot the last show. I shot it there. Yeah. My, my photos are in the movie. That one's messed up. Um, yeah, I just thought it was um, a great show, and the fact that people were saying it was uh, sad or it didn't sound right or it was messed up, like I didn't see that at all. Uh, we, people, most people think of uh, DC as the birthplace of straight edge, and maybe that was a, a segment of the scene, but did drugs ever play a detrimental role in the D.C. scene, you know, out, outside of that, as it as havoc in, in other uh, cities in the U.S. over the years with in, in different scenes? Um, I mean, I think for Jim, they did. Sorry. No, um, I'm kidding. Um, um, straight edge humor. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, um, I, you know, as a kid, I was... Um, I think that helped probably with my parents letting me, or you know, my mother letting me go out <laughs> and see shows because you know, I'd be like, no, <clears throat> straight edge, no drugs, no, you know. Um, and I was like, a, I was an old straight edge kid, you know. Um, but having said that, I saw all kinds of stuff uh, as a kid, um, you know, drugs and um, people. Uh, in a pretty bad way, you know, in a pretty bad way. Um, sometimes in the bathrooms, sometimes on the curb. Um, so, to you know, to, to say that D.C. was, you know, without that is just silly. And that's another thing that I wanted to address in the film and show that, yes, this was like this amazing song that by a band that were incredible, written in 1982, that... Um, a lot of people then took and create and made something um, their own, which is fine. But um, and you have to think about it. You know, again, think about that for a second. Like, put it in con. You know, eighty-two. I mean, for a punk band to be singing about, you know, I mean, that's huge. Um, it needs to be addressed. It needs to be talked about in the film. Um, but it certainly was not the case. And. And in, in DC, and um, Ian, you know, was certainly friends with people that were. I mean, I'm sure you saw too. It was like, you know, it was like, you know, I saw plenty of people that were fucked up. You know, it shows. And Ian's got his arm around him. You know, hey, you know, I mean, Black Market Baby. I love that band. But those guys were not saints. You know, I mean, it was their shows were scary, and those guys were like to drink, and who knows yeah. what else. And so. the fans, their fans like to drink too. That's why they were, you know, yeah. they wanted to be, you know, 
Like rock stars with yeah. the whole nine yards with the drinking and the girls and everything. Yeah, and they had you know a lot of that. But um, but anyway, so it, that was not the case. Sorry, that was not the case in D.C. And I think that was one of the misconceptions that I wanted to address in the film. No, well, for me personally, you know, I started <clears throat> going to shows probably around '87 and seeing. The, you know, especially outside like Hung Jury yeah. in that alley oh, yeah. or the alley behind 930 mm-hmm. Club you know I was introduced to like Minor Threat right. the day, and I was like wow I'm like growing up in this straight edge mecca yeah. you know Minor Threat but then it were you introduced there. to rats back there yeah. oh yes yeah. Um, <laughs> among other things I'm sure yeah we uh, yeah. you know in the dressing room I saw know, all kinds of things in that alley but um, yeah and I was kind of surprised that it wasn't, it didn't really seem, you know, the late 80s. It just didn't seem, it seemed to have disappeared. Well, I think Ian made a real effort to distance himself from that because it, by 87, 88, when you're talking about bands like Youth of Today, they took that and, I mean, there's no, I mean, it worked for them and it was great, but it just, I think if you were to ask him, uh, now or or then, I think that he would have, you know, I mean, to me, it seemed like there was a real effort on his part to distance himself from what was happening, especially in New York City, and you had, you know, uh, all these, like, yeah. and then it became this weird Harry Krishna thing, and it was like, I don't know, it just, it took on all these different forms. Awesome. <laughs> awesome Harry Krishna thing. Did I say weird? I hate that word, weird. Um, I would like to stick with the weird. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, that's no judgment, but um, but it did take on all kinds of different, um, I don't know, forms. And so I think at that point, Ian, if you were asking him about straight, I mean, if you were asking him about him now, he'll talk to you about it at length. But I'm not sure, and I don't want to speak for him. I'm just saying, I, in my mind, I just remember them. I just remember feeling like there was a a definite like. You know, even at in '87 when Fugazi started, there was a definite like, okay, I'm gonna, like, this is what I'm, this other stuff I don't know about. This is all I know is like this song I wrote, and this is how I live my life. I don't know about this other stuff. So this kind of I'm stepping away from the movie aspect more because I don't know as much about movies as these guys. But yeah, I'm wondering with without Fugazi, do you think DC would? still play as an important role in the history of punk you know because a lot of the bands that were important to me like Embrace or Right to Spring or, or SOA you know never really toured all that much didn't really have an impact nationally you know until it seemed like after they had broken up so without Fugazi where do you think these bands where do you think history would would it leave them I think um for, yes for Fugazi but more like Ian and Discord like he's been the steward of this music for 30 years and he's really um kept it alive and I think without him and Discord I think it might have gotten forgotten um yeah his band his all his bands were very important and I think uh, maybe Fugazi 
made people go like give a second look to DC. Maybe people that didn't came to it much later than any of those bands like the Embracer, Rights of Spring, or those mid '80s bands. But it it made them say, "Oh, this band's great. Like maybe I should check out this other band Ian was in, or maybe check out this other band Brendan was in, or something." So I think he, as an individual and as a musician is integral in how um, uh, the longevity of the DC scene. What do you think? I agree with all of that. I also think that um, what you mentioned, which was a lot of these bands like Rights of Spring and Embrace and, I mean, how most of the Discord's uh, roster at that point um, broke up really early on before um, they even... I mean... You know, there were a few years there when um, a band on Discord, if they put a record out on Discord and they were still a band, it was like, you know, holy shit. Like still, so I think, um, I think that that probably added a bit to the mystique of like, you know, because you would hear about how amazing these bands were, but they only played nine, you know, Embrace played, what, nine shows? Yeah. I mean, they were great, but... They never even put, took a uh, a band photo, you know, because Ian thought that they just weren't ever really uh, like cohesive, you know, like a band. Um, right to spring, you know, um, one were last one last wish, yeah. happy go lucky. I mean, there were these succession of bands that just never really. Um, it just wasn't. Again, it just. Um, you know, I really think if you were a band at that point, it was it was about then. It was about living like in that moment for whatever that night was and then you know if you were still around the next night great and then figure it out you know so um but you know uh, the question i guess your original question was would dc have had no i mean i think d i think fugazi you know that spotlight i think had had been there i mean you had a couple cities in in the 80s um, you had Minneapolis with Husker Du and the replacements, and then you had LA. Of course, there was always something happening. Um, so there were a, cor- a few little cities, New York, of course. Um, and I think once Fugazi came around in '87, people started to go, "Oh yeah, DC." So um, you know, I think I think the spotlight came back on the city in 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 '87, '88, and then you started to see these new crop of bands come around. And that's what really led into the kind of um, I was right, you know, right there during that explosion, you know, with Nirvana. So um, it's hard to say, you know, how the city would be without Fugazi. But um, I think the bigger question, I guess, would be like, how would it be without Discord? You know, I think that was they were always um, documenting what was happening. You know, I mean, I think by the end of the eighties, due to Fugazi's you know success, they were able to capital. You know, they were able to actually put a record out of a band that was still <laughs> together as, a, as opposed to the mid-80s where they were putting out records, you know, of a band that had broken up a year previous, yeah. so. In the early 90s, there were a lot of bands that inspired by DC bands that were emo bands, uh, called emo at the time, so short for emotional hardcore, it had been inspired largely by DC, and then through the 90s, as the 90s went on, emo began to take on a different Meaning, so the the meaning that many people understand if you say I listen to emo music now, and maybe this is more a few years ago, is dramatically different than this music that came out of DC and San Diego and then you know, became the same in the nineties. Any any thoughts? 
thoughts or feelings about the, how emo has changed over the years? I don't have any thoughts on how it's changed musically. Uh, all I can speak about really is um, what I saw. And that was another thing I wanted to address in the film. And you'll see that term, emo, you know, um, I wanted to get to the, to, the, to the root of that and how, where that started. Like, who was the first? Like, I remembered the first time I heard it was, you know, Brian Baker kind of, like, made fun. It was, like, Brian Baker from Minor Threat and Dagnasty. Um you know, I kind of heard through the grapevine, like, oh, he's, like, you know, making fun. You know, I mean, Baker's, like, a... If you've seen the film, like, he's, you know, one of the big... I mean, he's hilarious. So, and he's smart-ass. So, even then, you know, so there's, like, one camp that was like, oh, yeah, he's, like, totally, like, emo chord? This is silly. And then there was another camp that was like, oh, fuck Brian Baker, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when you would go... I can remember... It was not unusual to go to a Rights of Spring show and see people in the audience by the end of the set crying and throwing flowers on the stage. Okay? It happened. I saw it. More than, more than once. And, um, but that, but when you, again, you have to think about that. 1985, like that just was not something I had you know, ever seen. So it was, it was a pretty big deal. So anyway, um, and that's where that term came from. I mean, my kids use that term now, like, oh, don't be so emo, dad. You know, so um, it's just funny how it's become such a part of the, that's, I guess, more than anything, that's what I wanted to kind of address was, I, you know, I mean, I know all the stuff that came in the 90s, and, and even now I know that it's a term that is used to describe a specific genre, but I, I was more you know, sort of interested in how it's become just part of the American kind of vernacular, you know, and how it's, you know, used to describe just, it's you know. It's like a sad teenager. You know, it's exactly. Like, like oh, my kid. You're, you're sad. Don't be emo. Teenage, oh, you're, you're emo. Exactly. exactly. Like, totally. yeah. For me, yeah. it was, I think it was just, for me, it was like, get a grip, but I, I don't, <laughs> even, but even even aesthetically now, they seem to have warmed. Exactly. Like young kids yeah. who are into emo, they'll be like, "Is she don't like God? What is going on right, right. now?" It's like all sad just eventually converges into <laughs> exactly. And it wasn't. But the funny thing is, it wasn't. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't sad. It. I mean, it was right. like it was like emotional. It was it was emotional. It was like heartbreaking. Like it was like um, as Dave Grohl says in the movie. You know, it wasn't about. Reagan anymore, you know? It wasn't about, like, you know... Singing about the cops. Singing about the cops. It was like... Having your heart broken. Exactly, because now all of a sudden these guys that we're we're talking about now are 19, 18, 19, 20. All of a sudden, you know, they're in relationships and they're, you know, they're getting their fucking heart broken and now they're writing lyrics about it and Guy was, like, poet, you know, poetic as hell, so... To be fair, cops are pretty heartbreaking. They are, (laughs) but there's only so many ways... <laughs> well, that too. Uh, there's only so many ways you can yeah, no, express yeah. that. Yeah. So, what is the reception? We we need to wrap up soon. Yeah. But uh, what is the reception of the film? Oh, yeah. Have people? You know, you've, you've been taking it around, uh, touring it around. Uh, I saw a few places that you, you all play, kind of all over the country. Um, what has the reception been? Uh, has it been mostly positive? Have people had their own stories? Has it been like, this movie's bullshit, that's not how I remember it? Like, It'll happen, probably tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. It's been in- incredibly positive. Um, there, 
people come up we were just sold sold out in la a couple weeks ago and uh and we had four shows in dc and seattle all over and people are you know i was out in missoula at the big sky film festival and people come up to you afterwards and just say young people that didn't experience it and then people that were there and people that were like in music like um Ira Kaplan from uh, Yola Tango was at in Missoula, and he was in a different scene. He he said, you know, I wasn't really into DC hardcore. You know, he was into New York art rock scene and stuff, um, but he really loved it and thought it was, you know, really, um, uh, you know, moved him. People often say that it's more than just people that don't even necessarily know the bands or or they just come, you know, because they maybe saw Fugazi once or something. Like, the whole theme of the DIY and the being creative and doing your own thing and stuff, I think it resonates uh, with people. And that's really what resonated with us. I mean, I basically became a photographer because i started shooting bands and scott it was a a career of journalism and stuff because he he started documenting this stuff and it's really formed our lives and i think it it resonates with a lot of people that way um there's been like one bad review and there's just been an incredible positive um you know feedback no, I was just going to say the the one bad review that I've seen it was a B minus, which is still better than everything I did in high school. So, <laughs> do you think it's a movie that does play better with people who are familiar with it, or do you think it's a movie that people who don't know anything about the DC scene or about hardcore can still connect? I'd I'd like to think that people that don't know much about or anything about what happened in DC can appreciate the sort of the larger. Um, issues which are you know just uh, creating something from nothing uh, against all odds and then you know um, um, you know creating your own um, scene in your own community and being successful on your own terms those are all pretty general um, uh, concepts uh, but I'd like to think I mean and and I think we touched on this earlier I think one of the biggest for me personally, writing the, the the narrative of it was to be able to, uh, you know, make those folks happy, or or at least interest them enough. But then also um, acknowledge the people that were there, and 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 you know, um, hit enough of those little, you know, details that they would be happy as well. So. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to add, like my my kid's high school um, media film teacher came to see the movie, and he sent me this email afterwards that was like, "This is I based my whole like um, teaching curriculum on the themes that you had in the movie." That wow, like, really? yeah, he said that it's like, um, well, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like get out and 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 do it, and and you know just be creative for the sake of you know expressing yourself and everything. And um, I've had it's been really heartwarming the um, that kind of feedback that we've gotten. What are your plans for release the video? 
we're doing the um theatrical release for the throughout the spring um we have a, a bunch more dates boston and chicago and um uh, by the end of the spring we're working on the dvd um uh putting it together now with extras there's going to be a lot of cool extras um a lot of full performances from clips that we had in the movie um outtakes um from people that didn't make it in um, so we're putting that together now, and by probably by the summertime, um, we will um, have a DVD out. Um, no, it's self-released. We have a distributor, um, MVD, um, which uh, Discord and a lot of people use. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're manufacturing and uh, distributing, but we're self-releasing. Any other burning questions before we wrap up? Uh, thank you both so much for being on Cinepunks with us. We're really excited. Thanks for having us. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks to uh, Mike and Joseph. Mike and Joseph. Uh, and even Evan for doing <laughs> nothing. Yeah, you, you, um, you, you, you were quiet down a little bit. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> Guy won't shut up. Um, yeah, so, and thank you for listening. And I guess that's all. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing the movie. Anything you want to say, John? Nope, that's it. Thanks for coming. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. All right. Awesome. How'd that go? Was it good? Thank you so much. Thank you.